0: So Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26, it's carrying on from where we left off last week, on page 1178 of the Church Bibles. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ, and because of my chains... Most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others do out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of
1: me. Well, good morning. Please uh, keep your Bibles open to Philippians 1. It's great to uh, be with you this morning. I, I'm assuming Ben explained uh, my didn't explain my absence earlier. Um, just had a bit of a sleep in. I thought I'd just... <laughs> Great that it all happens without me. Now, um, Gav's had a pretty uh, rough week. He's been in bed with the flu for four days, and um, uh, he's improving, but uh, wasn't um, up to getting a sermon on Philippians one one to eleven together. So um, I preached uh, one to eleven, at Gregory Hills, and then zipped over here. And it's good with having half-hour staggered uh, starts. So if I start losing my words by the end of the morning, you'll know why. Uh, let's pray as we come to look at this uh, this part of God's word. Father God, we thank you. For your word, and we thank you for this opportunity to to reflect on it. Now we ask that you would give us insight and understanding. We ask that you would shape our hearts, our our desires, our goals in life. That we would live for Christ, and we ask that you would continue this work in us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a number of years ago, the um, oh, sorry, I should say, six to eight are heading out for Bible study. Yep. They know the drill. (laughs) Uh, A number of years ago, the Coca-Cola Company uh, announced that its goal was to place a Coke in the hand of everyone, of every person on Earth. There might be some other things that people on Earth might like, maybe some fresh, clean water. But um, there you go. Or more recently, their goal was to have a cold Coke within one mile of every person on Earth by the year 2020. That's a lot of Coke. That's a big goal. And maybe it's not a particularly responsible goal when you consider the other, other things that people may want. But that was their goal. That was their, their vision. What about McDonald's? Well, I looked up online. I found a few options for their, uh, their mission statement. One was to give every cust- each customer every time an experience which sets new standards in value, service, friendliness, and quantity, quality. <laughs> New standards. Well, here's another one: to be our customers' favourite place and way to eat and drink. How are they going? Is is McDonald's your favourite place and way to eat and drink? I, I, I can think of some younger people that that might be true. Anyway. <laughs> Now, it's normal for, for companies to have uh, these mission statements, these vision statements, and they, what they do is they tell you something about who they are and what, they, uh, what they're on about and what they, why they exist and what they're striving to achieve, what their, what their goal is. And I want to ask, what about you? What's your mission statement? What's your vision statement? What are you trying to achieve in life? Now, that might sound a little bit um, kind of overly contemplative and very reflective, a bit too deep for a, uh, for a Sunday morning. Maybe we just, we just you know, get on with life and live life and we don't have time or inclination to draw up a mission statement or a vision statement. That's just a bit silly, isn't it? And yet, if you think about it, all of us have some sort of goal, some sort of purpose, some sort of thing that's built into who we are and what we do, and all of us are working towards something. All of us have some kind of hope for the future, something that we're we're aiming to do, something we're aiming to be. I mean, to hope for something that's that's fundamental to what it is to be human. To we we want to hope and strive towards something. Maybe it's something as as kind of simple as security. Maybe it's success of some form, or maybe at the very least, it's survival. We all have some sort of goal, some sort of perhaps unwritten mission statement that we're living for. Now, one way to focus this thought is to uh, consider a scenario, and perhaps this is a little bit bit morbid, but it brings things into perspective. Consider the end of your life, at your funeral. Your loved ones are gathered around. What would you want them to say about you, about your life? Given that they are convinced that actually he was. What would you want them to say about you? How would you want them to to sum up your life? What would you want written on your gravestone? Because what that is, that will actually say something about what you value. About what you're living for. Now I'm guessing that you probably wouldn't want written on your gravestone. He was a great accountant she was a great nurse as good and right wonderful as accountants and nurses are would you want people to say about you he was a good bloke she was a great mum she was greatly loved it's better than the alternative he was successful he lived a comfortable life she had lots of fun he made lots of money Probably wouldn't be that crass. Probably say something more like, provided very well for his family, which is pretty much the same thing. What matters most in life? Can I invite you this morning to ask that question for yourself? What matters most in life? It's a great question and it's great because God provides the answer for us through the words of the Apostle Paul in the, in the passage before us this morning. We're going we're to look at that. But before we dive into it, just to remind you a bit of the background of uh, Philippians, uh, we saw last week Paul's uh, on his second missionary journey. And uh, part of that journey, he came to Philippi, to a, a Roman colony there, and, uh, and he established the church there, and people became Christians, and, and the church was begun. You can read about it in Acts 16. And the Philippians became very dear to, to Paul. Uh, he'd seen people like Lydia and, and the jailer and, the, and their households converted and become Christians and followers of Jesus, and, and there was this deep bond between them. And uh, in fact, the Philippians went on to support Paul financially as he as he continued on his uh, throughout his ministry. Over in chapter four, verse fourteen. It says, "Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need." There's this, there was this real, practical, uh, deep partnership and bond between Paul and the Philippians. And some years later, after his, that first visit, Paul uh, is in prison. We don't know exactly where or when, Um, from what we know in the book of Acts and and some details mentioned in Philippians, there's a good case to suggest that he was in Rome, uh, in which case it would have been about 61 AD. Uh, But it's not conclusive, it may have been uh, another prison somewhere else, he did seem to have a bit of a habit of getting himself uh, locked up. But at any rate, Paul is in prison when he writes and and, uh, the Philippians are concerned about his situation. And so Paul writes and says, in effect, guys, don't worry about me. It's actually good that I'm in prison. Why? Well, look there, verse 12. Verse 12, he says, Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. It's good that I'm in prison because the gospel has advanced. How? Well, in two ways. Firstly, verse 13, he says, As a result... It has become clear throughout the whole palace garden and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. So Paul's imprisonment, it, what it's done is it's opened up new opportunities for sharing the gospel. He's pretty much had a captive audience, you could say, except he's the captive and they're the audience. I mean, you can imagine it. Paul sees a new guard come on duty and he, and he thinks, oh, great. Now I can tell him about Jesus too. Maybe he'll become a follower of Jesus. And then the guard strolls up and says, ah, So, um, what have you done? Why are you in prison? Paul says, well, let me tell you. Let me tell you about Jesus. Paul's in prison. But he's not in prison because he's a rabble raiser or a terrorist or murderer. He's there because of Christ. He follows Christ. And everyone in the palace guard knows that. Because opposition doesn't stop Paul. Opposition is, is actually, It's normal. It's normal for those who believe and follow and proclaim Christ. Two Timothy chapter three verse twelve says, "Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted." Two Timothy three twelve. It's the normal expectation for followers of Jesus. So we shouldn't be surprised if we encounter some sort of opposition as we set about proclaiming Jesus in our community, at work, at school, wherever we are. It, it happened to Paul. Indeed, it happened to Jesus, and he's the one that we're following. So Paul's in prison, and yet the gospel is advancing. In fact, if it, is, if it was that he was in Rome when he wrote this, what that means is that the gospel has got to the heart of the Roman Empire, to Caesar's household. The gospel of Christ is not chained, even though Paul may be. And it's a good example of how God works amazingly for his good purposes, even despite, even through the difficulties and sufferings and struggles that his people face. So the gospel's advancing throughout the palace guard. But secondly, more than that, verse 14, he says, And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, does that seem strange to you? Maybe we'd, we'd expect the opposite. You know, Paul's been put in prison. Gee, i better stay out of better stay out of trouble. I'd I better lie low because, you know, I don't want to go to prison too. I don't, don't want that to happen to me. Maybe we'd expect that kind of response. I mean, just say so the Australian government started um, arresting people and locking them up for proclaiming Christ. Happens in many parts of the world. In fact, uh, in Australia, we're under increasing scrutiny from governments and various lobby groups. Just recently, there was a, uh, an article in the paper calling for the state government to ban certain churches from using public schools because of their teachings on sexuality, because they taught what the Bible says. There's increasing opposition to Christians in Australia. So just imagine, imagine if I was arrested and locked up for preaching Christ what would you do? Well, if what you believed about Christ didn't really matter to you, well, of course you'd lie low. But if Christ is important to you, then it might actually sharpen your resolve. Like those people Paul speaks of here who were encouraged, who were emboldened. If Paul can stand up under under opposition, then I will too. He's an example uh, to them, because of his chains, more people are preaching Christ fearlessly, and so Paul says, well, "Look, don't worry about me. This is this is good. The gospel of Christ is advancing, because what matters most to Paul is actually not his own comfort and his own well-being. It's not his own success. It's not even his own freedom. He, he he'll give that up. That's that's negotiable. What matters most is the advance of the gospel of Christ." And so he says, verse 15, there are different people preaching with different motives. Verse 15, he says, It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Some preach from motives of love and goodwill. That makes sense. But he says others preach out of rivalry, verse 15, or verse 17, selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. How does that work? How can you preach Christ? Out of selfish ambition, quite easily, now, these people may have—they may have been preaching to create a, a following for themselves, you know, establish themselves as as leaders in the church, and um, try to discredit Paul and turn people away from listening to him. I think it's a sad and sober warning that Christian ministry can be it can be conducted from wrong motives. But what's remarkable is Paul's response. He doesn't say, oh, that's so wrong and that's not fair and how dare they malign me, how dare they stir up trouble for me. He doesn't say that. Verse 18, what is he says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So Paul rejoices in even in wrongly motivated preaching of Christ because at least Christ is preached. Now that's not to say that our motives don't matter. Um, James chapter 3, verse 1 warns that teachers will be judged more strictly. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2 speaks of the importance of pure motives in ministry. Our, Our motives matter, but what matters even more is that Christ is preached. Because the person at the center of Paul's mission statement, at the center of his life, is not Paul. It's Jesus. Christ Jesus, the Son of God, the Lord of all, the one who created all, the one who who lived and died and rose again, the one who calls on us to follow him, the one who will return to judge, the one who will one day take us to be with him in glory. The one at the center of Paul's mission statement is Christ Jesus. You see it in verse 21. Just skip down to verse 21. He says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's it. That's Paul's mission statement in a nutshell. Now it's pretty condensed. We need to unpack it a bit. Paul says, from where he is, there's two options, two possible ways forward: death or life. Death is a real possibility because he's in prison, facing possible execution. Or life, if he's released. Well, he hopes to return to the Philippians. And yet, for Paul, this kind of situation—it's not a kind of good-bad hanging in the balance, you know. Death, bad, life, good, kind of, you know, might work out, it might not work out. It's, it's not like that at all. This is a win-win. This is whatever happens. It's, it's all good. Paul says to die is gain. Now, we might see death as kind of, well, that's the worst-case scenario, isn't it? Paul might lose his head, literally. But Paul says, no, that's, that's the best-case scenario. Verse 23, he says, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. And the Bible says here that the best thing ever is being with Christ. Imagine that the best scenario for you in life. I mean, just say that the best thing ever happens. Everything you could possibly dream of becomes reality. Life is good and relationships are great and you're happy and you're healthy and you're wealthy and life is fun and you're free and you don't have to worry about anything and you can do what you like. You can play golf every day if that's your thing or you can go shopping every day if that's your thing or you can be free from having to play golf or go shopping any day if that's your thing. (laughs) You can relax in the sun. By your pool at your beachfront mansion or whatever it is, enjoy life, everything is good. Imagine that. Your dream scenario in life. Friends, whatever that is, it just pales into insignificance compared to being with Christ Jesus in his kingdom. I think it's hard for us to imagine. It's hard for us to get our heads around it's hard because it's, it's beyond our experience. I remember many years ago, um, staying in a, in a five-star hotel on the Gold Coast. It was, um, I was on a work junket, not when I was a minister, but when I had a real job. And, and, and I stayed in, um, and I was just struck. There was a, sort of a new experience. I was struck by the luxury and the, the indulgence. Or another time, just before our eldest child, James, was born, Jenny and I went to Vanuatu on a short holiday and we stayed in a beautiful resort there. And, and I remember thinking, wow, this is, this is how the other half live. You know, is this, some people live life like this. It, it just opened my eyes to something that before then was unknown to me. It was beyond my experience. I didn't know things could be that good. Well, in a similar way we can find it hard to imagine what being with Christ in his kingdom what that will be like because it's it's beyond our experience and so what we do is we well, we can settle on the best of what we know and we set our hope and our and our vision on that but just suppose just suppose that, that there is something far greater that you just haven't experienced yet. Something beyond your experience, even your imagining, something so incredibly good. But friends, you don't need to suppose because God tells us this is real and it's really for us. If our trust is in Christ Jesus, we will be with him in glory. The Lord, the King, the one who is Lord over all in his glorious kingdom Forever. That's ours. That's that's our future. If we are in him, if our trust is in him. That's our vision. To die is gain, Paul says. And if that's our future, well, that shapes our present, doesn't it? We live now in the light of then. We live now for Christ. To, To live is Christ. Now, that seems a bit cryptic. What does it mean to live is Christ? Well, Paul expands on this a bit before and a bit after. Verse 20, he says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean, notice, fruitful labor for me. Jumping in to Verse 25, Just convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So, for Paul to live his Christ, what that means is labouring fruitfully to, to produce the fruit of the Philippians making progress and joy in the Christian faith. Living for Christ means living for them, for their Christian growth. Living for Christ means exalting Christ, he says in verse 20. How do we? exalt Christ well firstly we recognize that he is already the exalted one next chapter Philippians 2 we'll look at this next week Jesus though he was in very nature God didn't consider that something to be to be used to his own advantage but he humbled himself became a man obedient to death and therefore verse 9 says therefore God exalted him To the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is exalted, He is Lord over all, and one day all people everywhere, including you and me, we will acknowledge that. We will bow our knee, either willingly or unwillingly. Jesus is Lord. And so when I acknowledge him as Lord, as king over me, I exalt him. He is exalted in my body, in my life. Well, we do that in all sorts of ways. For example, when a husband says, Jesus wants me to sacrificially love my wife. So, yeah, Jesus, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do things the way you tell me to. Well, Jesus is exalted in that person's life. When we try to tell others of Jesus and what he's done for them, Jesus is exalted. When we pray for the people in our street, Jesus is exalted. When we teach and discipline our kids in what is right and wrong and we lead them in repenting of sin and by repenting of our own sin, lead them in teaching to forgive and being forgiven, Christ is exalted as we do that. When we carve out time to read God's word, and feed on his word spiritually in amongst the busyness of our week, Christ is exalted. When we show love to others by setting up church, packing up church, by bringing morning tea, by teaching the kids, by paying the bills so that people can meet to hear Christ's word and encourage one another, Christ is exalted. When we care for and pray for our Christian brother and sister as they go through a hard time, Christ is exalted. When we face opposition because we follow Christ and yet by his strength stand firm, Christ is exalted. When we face temptation to sin and yet stand firm in holiness and purity because we want to follow Christ, Christ is exalted. Or when we've given in to sin and then realise it and admit it and humbly turn to Christ in repentance, depend on his grace, Christ is exalted. That is, we exalt Christ by living with Christ as Lord, the exalted one. Friends, if that sounds hard, which it is, take courage because we're not on our own. Jesus, by his spirit, is with us, helping us as he helped Paul. Look at verse 19, just back a few verses. 19, Paul says, For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ... What has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. God is with us, working within us by his Spirit, enabling us to exalt Christ in our lives. Paul's motto, his vision statement, to live is Christ, to die is gain. What's yours? The world around us holds out all sorts of alternative mottos. To live is success, to live is security, wealth, comfort, fun, family, which are actually in the end they're just different forms of to live is me, my success, my security, my wealth, my comfort, my fun, my family. The world says to live is me, to die is despair. Friends, see the glory of the exalted Christ. He's died for us. He's been raised to life. He's been exalted to glory and unimaginable joy and glory awaits us if our trust is in him. We will be with Christ in his glorious kingdom. So whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, this life, amongst the pressures and struggles and opposition, and even if we find ourselves chained up in a Roman prison, let's live for Christ and Him exalted. Let's rejoice in the advance of the gospel of Christ. May we be like Paul, uh, with that single minded focus fixed on Christ, preaching Him, telling whoever we can, serving His people labouring for their progress and joy and one day being with him in unimaginable glory. To live is Christ, to die is gain. May that be the motto that we live by also. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us in the Lord Jesus, that he has lived and died and risen again and is exalted to your right hand, that he is Lord that he is exalted Father we thank you for the example of Paul we thank you for his vision and priority for the advance of the gospel we ask Father that you would help us to follow his example to to live for Christ to exalt him as Lord in our lives in all we do and say and think Father help us to set our eyes on the future that is ours in him And to live now in the light of that. And we ask this in his name. Amen.